grateful again uh, that we have this chance and opportunity to come uh, in God's presence. Um, thankful to, uh, thankful really that our, our, our children are here uh, with us, worshiping with us. Um, it's a good thing. Um, you know, uh, I think, I, think so. I, re I remember back to when we, you know, our kids were younger and they were little and, um, you know, we'd be in church with them and then they're making noise and running here and going there and doing all this stuff. And um, for me, when I, when I look out at the church and, and you hear the, the sounds of children, that, that, that just means God's kingdom is growing, right? That's a good, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not something that, you know, we have to be like, oh, my gosh. It's a good thing. The sounds of, of our children here with us um, is, is a beautiful thing. So um, it's, it's always good. So, you know, if there's a, if a little noise, if there's a little rattle, if there's a little crying, it's a little, that's, that's, that's all good. Um, it means that God's kingdom is, uh, is growing. So we're excited about that. Um, as we come this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. And the entire section that we're going to be going through is um, verses 5 through the end of the chapter. It is quite a long passage. Amelia was kind enough to read kind of a central portion from uh, that passage. But um, if you do have your Bible or uh, your Bible on a device, uh, I'd invite you to kind of get there. We're going to be sort of bouncing around here uh, this morning. So as we start, I just want to consider... Um, kind of the perception, the perceptions that we see about Jesus in the church today, um, particularly in the church in the West and the church in this country, right? In, in terms of what you could call popular Christianity. Um, and I would say there's sort of an idea, there's sort of a notion that is permeates popular Christianity about Jesus. And that is this, that Jesus is just interested in my happiness and nothing more. That, you know, he wants me to be financially comfortable, physically fit, mentally and emotionally stable, and that is the prime directive, right? That's the prime goal. And he would never demand anything of me that would cause those basic goals to be diverted from. So difficulties, trials, hardships in my life are only there because of a lack on, of faith on my part to believe that Jesus truly wants me to be happy. That is a perception about Jesus that is widespread, I would say, in popular Christianity, um, especially here in this country. Now, we have been going through this Gospel of Matthew for some time now. Uh, some of you have, have been jumping and tracking along with us uh, a little uh, later on in the process, but we uh, began this uh, a year ago in, in September. And I hope that you would see that that perception of Christ doesn't quite align with the picture that Matthew presents to us of Christ. That his teaching 
was really not, it didn't really have a lot to do with convenience. I don't know if you've noticed that. But there, he had much to say about suffering, much to say about hardship, trial, and suffering. And in um, Matthew chapter 10, it's hard to miss, it's hard to miss this theme of suffering, and more specifically, the type of suffering, persecution. So in Matthew chapter 10, we have Jesus sending out of the 12. They have been watching and listening and hearing Jesus' words, and now he is commissioning them and sending them out on a very uh, specific mission, and he has quite a lot to tell them about this mission that he is sending them on. And if you quickly scan through chapter 10, you see this through line of suffering that is all throughout. A quick scan. In, in verse 14, Jesus talks to, talks to them about the possibility of being received unfavorably when they go somewhere. In verse 23, he talks about the realities of persecution. He says not if they persecute you in one town. What does he say? When? When they persecute you in one town. In verse 16, Jesus speaks to them about being sent out as sheep amongst wolves. Right? That's a very stark image. It's a very um, striking image. In verses 17 to 19, he talks about being brought before wolves. And, and we understand that when he says wolves, he's talking about the religious leaders of the time. And he talks about being brought before them to be flogged. Then he talks about being dragged before Gentile rulers and kings to be sentenced to jail or even to death. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about even one's own family becoming an enemy to oneself. To the point where brother is turned against brother, father against child, a child against his parents, where there's betrayal. Verse 25, he talks about being maligned and, and talked down on. Verse 22, about being hated by all and, and multiple times about this idea of martyrdom. So you can't, you can't help but read this and see this, this through line of, of suffering in Jesus' teaching. That he, his call for his disciples is to pick up their cross and follow him, and that looks a little more literal for them than we might than we might have even thought. So last week, when we looked at the end of chapter nine, what did we discuss? We discussed the motive and the means for the mission. So the motive for the mission, compassion, and the means of the mission, prayer and people. And today, we want to delve a little bit into the actual mission. What is the church called to do? But 
and this is important, before we, we jump into the passage and try to apply it to ourselves first, there's something important we have to do. Because if we don't understand what Jesus was first saying to the people he was talking to, to them, if we don't first understand what he was saying to them, we will miss what God is saying to us now. And this is sort of um, maybe a good opportunity to stop and then think about how we engage with Scripture. So my hope is that you are here today uh, because you have some sort of desire to want to know and understand God's Word. My hope is that you're not coming here to hear me talk because hearing me talk is nothing spectacular, right? Ask my wife. She'll tell you she hears it all the time, right? Um, my hope is that you're here because our, our hope is that we would understand something of God's Word. And yet how we engage the, scripture is, uh, the Scriptures is important. So I don't know about you. I grew up in church. I had a Bible from when I was very young. And there is a tendency, we have a tendency as, as humans, I think, to read the Bible existentially, and by that I mean to go first to what is God saying to me, rather than to look at it historically first and start with what did God say to them. And it's important that we sort of order our reading and understanding of Scripture because otherwise uh, we can kind of uh, go off track. You know, I remember, you know, like I said, I grew up in the church. I had a Bible from when I was very young. And, you know, you first get a, get a Bible and you're kind of like, you know, yes, this, it's got all the answers in here. So, you know, sometimes I would just like flip through and go, uh, boom. What's it say here? Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> let me, let me uh, try this. Oh, okay, I like this much better, right? See, if we read the Bible in that way where, we're, where we put our first ourselves at the center of the story, um, uh, it, it, we can kind of get off track in our understanding of the scriptures and the understanding of what God would really want to say uh, for us that really will misunderstand and misapply if we don't understand who the original author was and who the original audience was. So as we come to this passage and we realize who is doing the talking, and who is that? Jesus. And who, who is he is talking to, and who is that? The apostles. Then we can make a determination about if what we are reading is merely descriptive or if it is descriptive and also prescriptive. Meaning, in other words, if what Jesus said to the 12 here applies to us indirectly in some sort of way today. So first, right, let's, let's talk about who Jesus is talking to. Um, if you look at the end of verse, uh, chapter 9, it says that he's, he's talking to his disciples. His disciples. In the passage, you see that phrase, his disciples, repeated uh, about six times in the beginning, 
the middle and the end sort of spread out. And in chapter 10, verse 1, those disciples are defined further as being his apostles. So apostles is, is a word that um, means emissary or ambassador or envoy or someone who is carrying a message, a messenger, someone who carries a message on behalf of someone else to someone else. So here they are called as apostles. It's the um, only time that that word apostles is used in Matthew, but you see that word used a lot in the book of Acts, the apostles. So then you see in verses 2 to 4 in chapter 10 that, um, that they are named. They are named for us. We see the apostles named in other parts of Scripture. You can see uh, a listing out in Mark chapter 3, in Luke chapter 6, and in Acts chapter 1. Why are they named? Why is it clarified who exactly the apostles were? Why are they listed here? Well, it's not just so we have a place to pull, you know, cool baby names from. Although, you know, we tend to use the Bible for that, I think, right? You jump around, it's like, okay, I need to find a cool name. It is a good spot for names, right? Although, I will say, I don't see many Bartholomews around. That name is available, right? If you want to go for that, it is there for you to use. Not many Bartholomews, right? So why are they listed here? You know, not just for, for cool names for us to look at, right? And not just for us to name other things, right? You see lots of things named after the apostles. They're listed here so we would know who Jesus is addressing and the significance of who he is addressing. So what Jesus does here is really he's replacing Israel's present ungodly leaders. And we've talked at length about the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, right? He's replacing them with the 12. And that number 12 here is significant because it corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. So what Jesus is doing here is beginning to build his church. In Ephesians, Paul, Paul says that, that God will build his church on the foundation of the apostles. So who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the 12. He's talking to the apostles. But what did he say to them that is not said to us? Or what is different about their mission and our mission? What's different? Well, I think there are some differences in the scope and the severity of, of the mission, right? So if you look in um, verses 5 and 6, you'll see that the, the, the apostles were commissioned to take the gospel to only the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles or Samaritans. Now, in obedience to the Great Commission, we're supposed to take the gospel where? All nations, both Jews and Gentiles, right? And even the apostles 
will come to do this, right? We know after Pentecost uh, what happens. But here, the scope is specific, that, that Israel should hear this good news first. So the scope is different, and the severity, I think, of the mission is somewhat different. Now, I'm not saying that there have never been Christians who, you know, if you look in, in verses 9 and 10, you see Jesus' guidance here to them to take what? No gold, no bag, no clothes, no sandals, no staff. Now, I'm not saying that there have never been Christians who have taken that literally because we have examples throughout Christian history of, of people who did that. And I'm not saying that other Christians haven't been persecuted and tortured and killed for their faith. But as we look at what these specific disciples are called to in this specific moment, um, there is an intensity here to what they are being called to do. He's warning them that slander is waiting for them. That suffering is waiting for them. That death is waiting for them. And when you look back into the history of the apostles, you find that all but Judas, who we know, hangs himself, and John, who is exiled to the island of Patmos, all are, are martyred. Bartholomew, Bartholomew and James, the son of Zebedee, and Matthias, who was Judas's replacement, were all beheaded. Thomas and Matthew speared to death. Peter, Andrew, Philip, Jude, Simon the Zealot, and James, the son of Alphaeus, all crucified. So, yes, we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ, but it may not, be, may not always be to suffer to death. Right? That we must pick up our crosses, but our, our crosses may not always lead to Roman execution necessarily. So there are some differences between what Jesus says to them and what he says to us. But then what is the same? And there are things that are the same. There is application for us. Because we know Matthew, Matthew has not written this simply as a history book. Matthew did not write this as just a recording of history. He wrote this in the role of an evangelist. So you could say that within the Gospel of Matthew, we have guidance for what Christian discipleship looks like. So this call to these 12, this call and commission to these 12, do provide us with some timeless sort of truths or timeless principles for our mission, for the Gospel mission today. And I, I want to take a look at, and there's so many different ways you could approach this, but I want to take a look at six of those mission principles to help us in our mission 
today. So, six principles. Here's the first, and this is just a summary of last week. Right? Number one, what is our motive for mission? Compassion. And the means of doing that harvesting that we talked about, prayer and people. So number one, we are to be compassionate, we are to pray, and we are to work. Start there. Number two, we don't have to be great to reach the least. We don't have to be great to reach the least. So we see that the apostles' mission was to who? The, the lost sheep of Israel? We talked a bit last week about um, Jesus looking at the people and seeing them as, uh, as, as sheep without a shepherd. So the, we see the crowds here viewed as the sheep that are, that are being oppressed by not-so-great shepherds in the scribes and Pharisees. And that's who their mission is to, right? The apostles' mission is to the same people that Jesus was ministering thus far. So then the question is, who was Jesus ministering to thus far? These crowds, the crowd, and especially who? The socially and the religiously outcasts. So the mission is to the least. The mission is to the least. But by the world standards, how do the, the, the 12 look as they, are, as they are sent out? These 12, the, the, they're being sent out sort of like missionaries. But according to the world standards, they're, they're, they're not exactly the greatest. So if you look back at the listing of the disciples there in verses 2 to 4, and you take a look, you see that their names are not just listed as names. There are times when there, is, there are words added to their names. Uh, Judas is listed last, and he gets that addition of, that notorious addition of what? The one who betrayed him. A few other tags are added um, for just clarity because you had some disciples with the same name, right? So you want to distinguish like one James from the other James. You want to distinguish one Simon, the zealot, from the other Simon, Peter. But notice there's only one man that gets his occupation added. Who is that? It's not, it's not Andrew the fisherman or Thomas the whatever he was. Who is it? It's Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. I don't want to make too much of this point other than what I'm saying here is that God chose the outcasts to reach the outcast.
We don't hear this, we don't see this listing here as Peter the Great. You know, John the Mighty. Thaddeus the Holy. What do we find in these men? These are these are common, these are common men. These are men, men who are rough around the edges, to say the least. And it's this group of maybe the not-so-greatest, this group of 12 who take then what? The greatest message. The not-so-greatest take the greatest message of the gospel into this not-so-great world. What does this mean for us? And mission. You don't you don't need money, right? We will make we will make all manner of excuses. Let me be honest with you this morning. We will make all manner of excuses to not go out on mission. You don't need money. You don't need an elite education. You don't need worldly power or prestige. You don't need fame. You don't need all of that to effectively minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church was built upon the faithful testimony of this motley crew. What do we see? God is happy. God was happy, and God is still happy to build his church with some crooked beams, to put it another way with some slightly contorted building materials. He uses the outcast to reach the outcast. You don't have to be the greatest to reach the least. The third principle for us, that the, the gospel going depends on gospel giving, right? Gospel goers depend on gospel givers, right? Or, to, or you can look at it that this going in the gospel depends on God's providential provision through the giving and the hospitality of believers. This is what we see, right? That there's, there's two groups sort of here on mission. Now, whether you're full-time ministry or full, not full-time ministry, there are ways in which we are all called to go. There are ways that we are all called to go. But here, what we see is that there are two groups kind of involved in this mission. There's the, the goers, right, the apostles. And what are, what, are, what are they supposed to bring with them? Nothing. <laughs> and then, if you look into um, verse 11, you've got who? The givers, who Jesus describes as worthy. He describes them as worthy. 
So these givers are the ones who do what? Who are welcoming the goers into their homes, right? And, and graciously giving, providing, and nurturing. Right? And I look out, and, and who knows what God has in store for, for all of us in terms of um, how God is going to use us on mission. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blank canvas of what God will work upon. It's, it's kind of exciting to think about. And again, we all go in our own certain way, right? But, you, you know, whether, whether you are in full, a full-time capacity in ministering the gospel or not, right, the majority of us will have this giving opportunity, this opportunity to give. And, he, and the beautiful thing that Jesus says essentially to the givers, and this is the beautiful thing that he essentially says to the givers, hey, keep your head up. Without you, the mission fails. Without you, the mission fails. In verse 40, Jesus does this equation where he equates receiving the goers. Like when you receive someone, when you are hospitable to someone who is, who is going, right? When you act graciously uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a giving capacity, he equates receiving those goers as what? Receiving Jesus himself and the Father. And in verse 41, he talks about givers getting a reward even for the seemingly insignificant act of hospitality. The example given in verse 42 is what? A, just a cup of cold water. Now, we will, we will look at giving and hospitality and these sort of things and kind of slide them under the rug and say, well, you know, these aren't that important. These are kind of, we'll just leave them over here. But here, Jesus elevates just the mere simple hospitality of offering a cold cup of water. So imagine what role the, 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 the act of graciously giving and being graciously hospitable plays in God's mission. So as much as this passage is, is saying to the goers, hey, you can't be greedy, right, and you need to sacrifice much, it's also a command for givers to sacrifice. So that, that's number three. Number four, our character represents Christ as we are on mission, our character. So if you look in verses 8 to 10, Jesus is sort of teaching that the, that the goers cannot be greedy for gain. And... Unfortunately, especially in American Christianity, with the pervasiveness of the prosperity gospel, you see those that have totally missed this point. 
that the gospel is not a, a racket for gaining wealth. In fact, that actually offends the gospel. That's an affront to the gospel. This idea of being dependent upon God and the, the giving and the provision of those who are graciously giving, more than that, this idea that simplicity and urgency should embody our mission. Not what? Worldly wealth or worldly power or worldly security. What are the hallmarks of our mission? Is there a simplicity and an urgency? I'll tell you, that's my hope for our church, that those two qualities would come through, simplicity and urgency in the gospel, and not wealth or power or security like the, like the world uh, leans upon. Again, we're talking about the character of the mission, right? Our, how our character represents Christ in the mission. In verse 16, you see a, a little more um, focus on character. And there's sort of some, some animal imagery that's used here that we need to kind of wrap our heads around. So what do we see? There's a, there's a pic, there are some pictures that are laid before us. We've got a sheep surrounded by wolves. And then what else? We've got a snake and a dove. All right. You know, not exactly top tier in terms of the animal kingdom, the way you would lay it out, right? Sheep, snake, dove. That's what we get. Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Sheep, snake, dove. So if we, you know, we stick with the animal theme here, right? In terms of character, in terms of character, we don't see the call to be the, the tiger, right? Praying on the weak. Strutting around in, in stark color. Showing our teeth, if needed, to coerce people to believe, or else. That's not the picture. That's not the picture we get. We're to be as sheep. How, though? Well, vulnerable. Fully dependent on the shepherd to lead, provide, care for, protect. But we are not to be as sheep in sheepishness or foolishness, right? We saw the video last week, right, about the sheep. I hope you remember that one, right? So that is why there's this clarification here that comes with the snake and the dove. And this is such an interesting sort of 
juxtaposition here, I think. We are supposed to be shrewd, but innocent. That's, an in, that's a very, I think that's a somewhat rare combination of characteristics when you think about it. We're, we're supposed to be godly, but not gullible. You, you, could, you could think of it this way. We're called to be snake smart, but not snake sneaky, if that makes sense. But why? Why, why all this discussion here about, about, about these qualities? Well, because our character, our character represents Christ. Our, our godliness proclaims the gospel. The fifth principle. Just like the apostles, we're supposed to give the same gospel announcement. And what is that? Verse 7. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I use the word announcement intentionally because both here and when you look throughout the book of Acts, which, which documents the, the birth of the church and the early history of the church, the Christian message is, is not really a suggestion or, or even an, an offer. The Christian message is not like, uh, you know, yeah, give it a whirl. You know, you might, you might like it. That's not what it is. It, it's not even an offer. It's not, it's not at its core. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life if you'll welcome him into your heart. And hear me this morning, it's an announcement of the good news of the kingdom. It's an announcement. And the good news is that God in Christ has sent from heaven his son as king. That Jesus that God demonstrated Jesus to be king through his life, his teachings, his miracles, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, all fulfilled in Scripture. So, now is the time for repentance and faith. That we can turn to this king for rescue. And yet, going back to these perceptions of Christ in Christianity today and these perceptions of, of belief and faith, you'll often hear today these notions that God can change your life, God can help you find yourself, God can help you love yourself, God can bring you peace of mind, God can save your marriage or get you that new job or help you to be a success, and he, he very well might do all those things. But let me ask you, a message like that, mess, a message like that won't cause persecution, will it? 
love to hear that message. The world would love to, loves to hear that message. And yet, if we stick to, if we stick to preach what Jesus said and what the apostles preached, that Jesus is the way to God because he's from God, and then we can trust him, that we should have allegiance to him and only him. That there is a judgment that does happen, but it's only by God, not by men, not by us. Yeah, that message, with that message, you might expect some persecution. Right? You might get some pushback. You might get some, catch some static, right? You might catch some noise for trying to, attempting to stick to, abide by, heed and listen to how Je Jesus commands on how to think and live and witness to the world, right? So if we preach, if we truly stick to what the gospel says, Right? We would, Jesus said, to expect what, what we should expect. And what is that? That there would be some persecution. And sixth, this last principle for mission, the mission has an ultimate risk, but it also has an ultimate reward. Ultimate risk, ultimate reward. You read the passage, and there's some danger in the mission. It seems pretty obvious, right? Are you looking, looking for some static, right? You're looking to be maligned, hated, lose your life. So sign up. There's risk, but it's a risk that is worth giving our lives to. as we'll come to close this morning. As you look through this passage, you'll see that Jesus has sprinkled throughout some motivations for perseverance. That when we, when we are attempting to live as Christ has taught us to live, when we're attempting to be on mission the way Christ has called us to be on mission and we run into weariness and we run into challenge and we run into uh, lack of understanding, we run into all manner of hardships, Jesus has sprinkled in these motives for persevering, for holding on, for sticking to it, for making it to the end. He says, expect suffering expect hardships expect persecution endure but don't fear it don't fear it why i think we can see four reasons from the passage what reason do we have to not fear while we're on mission was this not the way jesus went he suffered. We're his disciples. We'll suffer. And through suffering, we do what? We identify with Christ. Secondly, 
the hardships that on mission, the struggles, the challenges on mission will not stop the gospel. They actually will what? Promote the gospel. As you as God guides you through the hardship, God receives the glory in that, and then the, the gospel is pushed forward. Third, what's another motivation for persevere, persevering on mission? And it's the passage that Amelia read for us. God knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground dead. And with fatherly love, God is with you. God is with you even in your suffering. I remember hearing a talk on, on this passage about the hairs of your head are all numbered. And um, the person who was speaking sort of played with the language a bit and said, notice that it said, your hairs are all numbered. So not just the, that God knows, um, and he was, in, he was reading into the text a little bit, but I, I, it's always stuck with me. It's not that he just knows the total number of hairs on your head right now, but he has numbered every hair that you have had upon your head from the beginning. So as one hair falls, he knows that's hair 500,623 falling. That level of understanding, God merges with his care for you you so as you are on mission he knows he knows the challenge he knows the struggle he knows your fears he knows your anxieties he knows the the things that 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 you know when when you feel the urge to talk to someone and you you feel that anxiety that fear he knows he's with you he know he's numbered the hairs upon your head And fourth, the fourth, fourth motivation for persevering on mission. That following Jesus, the way Jesus has called us to follow him, is worth it. It is worth it. Verse 39, Jesus says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it this is one of and there's more than one of these this is one of these upside down kingdom verses we're finding out that the king the kingdom of the of the king that we're talking about it's an upside down topsy-turvy up is down left is right sort of kingdom the first will be last and the last will be first find your life lose it lose your life find it See, if you're doing everything in your power right now to try and make it in this life, if that is your focus, if you are pouring your energy, your time, your money, your thought, everything, if you're pouring it into making it, to getting that perfect spouse only and 
just getting that best job only and trying to secure that big house only and trying to make all the right connections only. Guess what? You lose. You lose. But if you are willing to come to Jesus as king and give him your life and say, here's my life, Lord. It's, it is all yours. I'll go where you would have me go. I'll do what you would have me do. I'll give what you will have me give. And I'll suffer what you will have me suffer. Then, in this beautiful irony of the kingdom, this upside-down, topsy-turvy kingdom, what? You will find life. You will find life, true life, in this life and true life in the life to come. What a great promise. What a great encouragement to us as we embark on mission. Let our prayer be that God enables us to be compassionate, to see the lost as as he sees the lost and to persevere on mission even through the hardships because we know that it will be worth it in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.